The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. So let's take our Bibles, if you would, and we open them again to Psalm 29. We read just a moment ago. Uh, today we reach the end of our study of worship in the church. This is the fifth and final message. And some of you may have thought that this is way too much about worship, and this is about all the worship that I can stand. My tendency is to stick with the sermon theme until I've exhausted the subject and perhaps exhausted you as well, but I know that if I preached ten more sermons on worship, I don't think that I would run out of material. Uh, I'm sure that we don't understand all the implications of worship and will not discover All there is to know until we experience worship in the glories and holiness of heaven. In heaven, we will be perfect saints and we will see God in his glory, a glory that we only see by faith in the present time. Uh, His glory is unimaginable. It is incomprehensible to the human mind. It is indescribable in human language. And this is, I'm sure, one of the reasons the Apostle Paul said that when he had his vision of heaven, or when he was actually taken into heaven, whichever that was, that he saw things that he was, was not lawful for him to speak. And I think that probably means there was no way that he could. He couldn't explain what he saw. But when we reach heaven, only then will we begin to understand the power and the magnificence of God and the imperative that we have to worship him. Why? What is the reason that we worship him? And it will become so clear when we finally get into the glories of heaven. And not only this, but heaven is an eternal place where worship never ceases. Throughout all of eternity... Worship will be a full-time occupation. And that doesn't mean that we'll be stuck in the rituals of a church liturgy. Nothing like that. Not an organized liturgy. But rather when we're in the presence of God in heaven, every activity in, in every place that we are, in every part of the new universe, in every employment that God would give us in that place, it is worship. Worship is to obey God always, and we will obey God always when we are perfect in heaven. And then just to soak up the divine presence of God, that is worship. We will acknowledge the glory of God. And we are there, we will be in heaven because of the pleasure of the sovereign God who has made us his children and made us to enjoy him forever. Now this morning we did read the entire 29th Psalm just a moment ago. And in the beginning of this Psalm, the first two verses is what I'd like to concentrate on today. Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2, where David says, Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. 
I think it's helpful for us to understand how this psalm comes to us. What is the purpose of this psalm in the Psalter? This is a a nature psalm in which David observes the churning waters of the Mediterranean Sea. He feels the fierce winds that blow across the water. He sees lightning. He hears thunder. And to him, it's as if nature calls out to him as a witness of the majesty and the glory of Almighty God. Psalm 8 is a nature psalm. And you may be more familiar with that one than you are with this one. In the third and fourth verses of Psalm 8, David wrote, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Psalm 19 is a nature psalm. In that psalm, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 29 is one of the most interesting of the nature psalms because of the reason it was written. In the introduction to the Literary Study Bible, it's noted that this psalm is a parody of the Canaanite poems that are based on the myth of their heathen god Baal. Baal was the fertility god, and the Canaanites had their stories about how Baal conquered his enemies. The turbulence of the Mediterranean Sea, the rains that swept across the land because of the storms on the sea, those were typical of how Baal would establish the place of his throne in his kingdom. And what David did was to build upon that religious myth to say that everything that was ascribed to Baal should be ascribed to the one true living God who is the source of all of these things. All of it should be attributed to Jehovah God. And so instead of Baal, who is heard in the voice of the waters, it's the voice of God that thunders. It's the voice of God that sends a tornado of wind strong enough to break the cedars of Lebanon. It's God who sends earthquakes. It's God who opens the womb of the deer and causes it to calve. It's God who enters his temple where everyone speaks of his glory. In other psalms, the same types of themes are reflected in stories about the exodus of Israel from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea. It is God who sent down manna from heaven. It is God who gave an abundance of quail to eat. It is Jehovah God who divided the Jordan. And struck fear into the Canaanites by destroying their signature fortified city of Jericho. Who is this God? He is the God to be worshipped. And so David begins the psalm. Given to the Lord. Not to Baal. Given to the Lord, O ye mighty. Given to the Lord, glory and strength. Given to the Lord, the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord. That's Jehovah. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Today, in this church building, in this place, it is the God of Psalm 29 that we worship. He is the same God who did all the mighty works that the Bible records 
He is the God that never changes. He is the God that never needs to adapt. Though we adapt. And many things we don't want to adapt to. Things that we should not adapt to. Sin. Things that are going on around us that have always been an abomination to God. They're still an abomination to God because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so like David, I, you and I, dare not trifle with this God. He is due glory to his name. And when we come into his presence, we ought not to hold back anything in worship of him. Now, the simplest way that I can tell you how to worship God is to give him the glory that is due to his name. Whenever you see phrases like this in the scriptures where God's name is discussed, the writer intends to include everything that the name stands for. So that we could say God's name is a compendium of all of his attributes, his holiness, his his power, the might, the uh, righteousness, and we could go on and on speaking of the attributes of God. And when we speak his name, of his name, it includes all these things, the transcendence, the omnipotence, the omniscience of God. And this is the reason that it is exceedingly sinful for anyone to take God's name in vain by using it as a curse word. Or by using it as a byword in normal conversation. And what a shame it is, especially for a Christian, to use God's name flippantly and not to treat it with the respect that it's due. God, God's name, is glorious. And we must reverence his name. Well, today I want to examine some practical means of worshiping God. Some believe that worship is mystical, that it is an ethereal activity, which includes chanting or channeling, sitting in a yoga position or something of the sort. Those things are not worship. I remember someone sent me a, an email a few years ago, and it was about a church in San Francisco that was holding yoga classes in the auditorium, in a place that was supposed to be... a a place to worship God, a sanctuary. Well, they had turned it into a place for yoga. Now, there was still a church, but this is what they, what they did in their services. They had yoga classes. Those things aren't worship. People are really mixed up about God. An example of this is yoga, which has nothing to do with Jehovah God. Now, it's not my purpose today that I would stand here and disparage yoga. That's not the subject today. But it is an example of how mixed up people are when it comes to the worship of God. Yoga is not Christian. It has no place in a Christian church. Yoga means unity with the divine. And that is pantheistic and pagan. In our pluralistic culture, it's not unusual to find Eastern mysticism mixed in with Christian beliefs, so that nobody seems to know this God who rides on that chariot in the winds, who is on the storms of the sea. Nobody seems to know this God or cares 
about this God whose wrath is on them unless they acknowledge his being in the trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the word of God says that his wrath abides upon those who will not bow before him and give him the glory that is due his name. And to glorify God, you must know Jesus Christ and him alone as Savior who gave his life to deliver us from the wrath to come. He is Jehovah God. Chanting, channeling, yoga, mysticism, these are not worship. Worship is a practical activity. And you and I, as Christians, were made for worship. And so this great God that we have, who is transcendent, who is so far above us, does not intend that we would have to search out and find out too much about where worship is, what to do about it. He is not trying to obscure worship from us. And so worship should not be difficult for Christians to discover. Now we've talked about six topics in these messages on worship. We talked about worship is regulated by truth, that worship requires the preaching of the word. Then we defined worship, worship defined, worship must be reverent. Where do we worship? Who do we worship? And now today we take up our seventh topic, which is the personal application of worship. So now we're down to the nuts and the bolts of worship. What are we to do to worship God? What does God consider as a, is an act of worship? Well, it doesn't really matter what we think of it. It doesn't matter what you and I evaluate worship to be. The woman at the well that Jesus spoke to thought that she worshipped God. She says, Mount Gerizim, this is the place where we worship. The Jews in Jerusalem, with all the rituals that they had and how they had, remember we talked about last week, how they were buying and selling sacrificial animals at the temple and Jesus called it a den of thieves, and yet they still thought they worshipped God. In the Old Testament, you remember how, how the people made a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses was up on the mountain. What did they think? Well, they thought we are worshiping God and they were worshiping an idol. But what is it then that God calls worship? What glorifies God? Worship glorifies God, so how do we do it? Well, first, and I believe that this should be the top of our list, trust in God is worship. Worship is believing God. And we must be careful with this because worship is not believing in God. Statistics say that 96% of people in America believe in God. But we're very careful to note that James said demons also believe in God. And I don't think you and I are going to have a knockdown, drag out argument about whether the devil worships God. We know that he does it. No, trusting God is believing him. It's believing without hesitation and with complete confidence. Believing that what he says is true no matter what we see with our eyes. Peter said that we have a more sure word of prophecy than what we see with our eyes and what we hear with our ears. We have God's word. 
And we believe what God's word says, no matter who or how many deny it. Now, that's a tall order because to believe what he says means that you must know what he says. And this is the rub for most complaining and contrary people. They think they know what God said, but they don't. And this is a common problem with people that that have a different idea of Jesus than the one that's presented in the New Testament. Selective quoting of Jesus, misquoting of Jesus, misinterpretation of Jesus is a religious epidemic. People think they know who Jesus is and what Jesus said, but they don't know anything about him. They haven't read it. They haven't heard it. They haven't spent time with it. Now, it sounds very simple for me to say that we believe God no matter what. Most of us, if not all of us here today, we would agree with that statement. We absolutely do believe everything that God says. And though we say that we believe it, it's not true in our practice. Now, it may be true theologically. Yes, we we know what the Bible says about that. We believe that. It may be true theologically, but for most of us, it's not true practically. Now, I've learned much about this in the past two years. We, We have earthquakes in California, but none of us expected that we would see what we see today. We don't expect to see economic earthquakes. Financial earthquakes. We, we don't expect to see uh, the, the, the kind of earthquake that, that causes a, uh, people to get sick and die by thousands. We don't expect that. We don't expect to find a crisis of faith in America when America has been the world's missionary rock in the preaching of the gospel for the past 250 years. And so I think that Christians see this and they get depressed, they become shaky in their faith, and they are unsure what God is doing. And so Christians feel abandoned, and if they are abandoned, then they also feel that it's their responsibility to solve their problems any way they can. Doubt and worry and stepping out in front of God to make things happen, that shows that we don't really trust God. Making decisions that run counter to the ability to serve God, whether that be in the place that we live, whether it's in our employment, all of that is doubt that God controls our lives for our best welfare. And so what this does, that doubt takes away our ability to worship God. Now, when we speak of faith in God, that is about as basic as you can get with worship. This underlies everything. Faith believes that God is totally trustworthy. There are heroes of faith in the Bible that face impossible odds, and it was their genuine faith in God that brought them through. David, as a young shepherd boy, went up against mighty Goliath, who's a man of war, and a shepherd boy combating a seasoned military giant, and giant literally, that was an impossible task. Joshua marching against the fortified city of Jericho, that was an impossible conquest. Gideon fighting thousands of Midianites with only 300 men, that was impossible. But in all of those cases and many, many more, it was faith in God that brought the victory. It was not faith that God exists, but faith that God will do what he says and believe that without wavering. When you get a chance... 
read 1 Samuel 21. And there you'll see what happened to David. Now, we, we're reading a psalm by David, and he wrote many, many of the psalms. But see what happened to David when he didn't fully trust God to take care of him. When, when he was fleeing from Saul, he went to Abimelech, the high priest, and he lied about the reason that he was there. And that caused the death of 85 of Israel's priests. And then David, in a real twist of events, instead of trusting God, he took refuge at Gath, which is the city of Goliath. And he had to make it appear that he was a harmless madman by going to the gates of the city and scratching on the wood, on the wooden gates and spittle running down his beard to make him look like he was crazy. And so it was the enemies of God that became his protection instead of God. Now, David's doubt was not God honoring, whereas faith always honors God. And so when God's people believe what God can do, it is an act of worship. Faith brings God glory. We never come here and honor God and worship him without absolute unwavering faith. Trust in God is worship. Now secondly, vocalizing praise is worship. Now remember, we're just, we're just going through practical considerations. This isn't hard. We worship God when we open our mouths to praise him. Read through the Psalms and see how many of these Psalms are written as praises to God. See the order of worship and the ascent to the temple. These things were sung as they went up the temple steps to worship the Lord. God wants us to vocalize our praises to him. And one of the best ways to do this is to remember the past. To remember what God did in the past. In Exodus, Moses wrote a song of remembrance. And it was about how God delivered his people from Egypt. And his song was so good that we find it in the Old Testament times where he wrote it there in the book of Exodus. We find it there, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, all of that about the mighty works of God. And that song is sung all the way till you get to Revelation, to the end of the Bible. Many hymn writers would love to have a song that charted for 3,500 years and it's still going strong. There are constant reminders throughout Scripture of what God did for Israel. The psalmist remembered. You find this often. The prophets remembered it. Stephen, in the book of Acts, when he preached his sermon to those who stoned him, he remembered what God did for Israel. In Acts, on Peter's sermon on Pentecost, he also remembered what God did for Israel. The Apostle Paul used the very same theme when he explained why did God give us all these examples in the Old Testament. And he tells us that we need to pay attention to the mighty works of God. And often, as the Lord's church, we remember what God has done for us and the answer to our prayers. Many times, Gary will send out an email, because send out to our subscribers that... that uh, someone wants to tell us that God answered their prayer, that God remembered them. And they want us to remember, you prayed for me. And that prayer happened. Uh, God took care of it. And they want us to know that. Our songs of worship are best when we remember the cross of Jesus Christ. 
They are best when we go back and remember the resurrection of Jesus. They're even best when we go back and remember how hard, how difficult the persecutions were for early Christians and yet still strong in their faith, they worshiped God and kept on and kept on and we have a church today because of it. We remember those who gave their lives that we might have the faith that we believe today. We worship God when we open our mouths with confession of his wonderful works. And so if you're a person who just likes to sit in the congregation and just listen to congregational singing and you don't participate, you haven't vocalized praise. So you've missed then one of the aspects of worship. Isn't that very practical? That's very simple. That wasn't hard. We praise God for what he has done. And the thing that you can really praise him for every day of your life is what he did in saving your soul. That worships God. Thirdly, confession is worship. We worship and glorify God when we confess our sins. Do you know what confession is? What, what does that word confession truly mean? Well, it's our admission that God is right. Confession is telling God that our way is not the right way. It's when we tell him and others that we are mistaken. We are mistaken if we think that our minds are good enough to second guess God and to reject his way for our way. Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to us, but our ways always lead to destruction. And so confession is when we say, God, your path is always right. And when we take the wrong path and we go our own way, we find ourselves in trouble. That happens. It happens to all of us. And so the Bible tells us, just stop right there. Stop what you're doing. Stop and confess. God, I should have listened to you because you are always right. And confession pleases God because confession shows a heart of worship. Do you understand why this is true? The scripture says that we must confess, and when we do, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from those sins. A clean Christian always glorifies God because our sanctification always leads to worship. God doesn't use dirty vessels. And so when Israel offered sacrifices without clean hearts, the worship wasn't acceptable. God said in Isaiah, he said, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. And this next scripture, you know it very well because we've used it throughout our study of worship. Psalm 24, 3 through 5, who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then in the ninth and 10th verses, it says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. You know what Selah means? Think about that. Just think about that. 
When you come to church with an attitude of confession, God will accept your worship, but not until. When we take the Lord's Supper, we always encourage this. We emphasize that in order to complete this act of worship, taking of participating in the communion, it doesn't work until you have confessed your sins. Now, fourthly, work is worship. You don't need a special location to worship God. Corporate worship, that's good. It's necessary. And that's the reason that we're here today. It's the reason that we meet. But we ought not to think that this is the only place that we worship because worship is not a building. Now, we've already discussed that, uh, that worship is not a place. That's what Jesus taught the, in the John 4 passage with the woman at the well. Worship happens when you are busy in the Lord's work. And just as a side note, you can worship God also in your secular work. Now, that might seem like a very hard thing to do for some of you. But if you are submissive and you are obedient to your employer, that is God's work. Because God commands that we recognize authority and be honest in our work. Just listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3. Servants. Obey in all things your masters. Now let's put that into our context today. When he says servants, he would be talking to employees. Employees, obey in all things your boss according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. (laughs) You fear God when you obey your employer. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Work for him like you're working for God and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. You see, you might not think that your secular labor is religious labor, but Paul said every obedience to authority is God's work. Now, what then does our labor for the Lord do? Well, the Bible says that it produces fruit. Jesus says in John fifteen eight, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. God receives glory, it says, Jesus says, from fruit. And glory, giving God glory, is worship, isn't it? That's what we've been talking about. So your good works are worship. They glorify God. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. So putting your hand to that plow as the Bible describes it and not growing weary in well-doing, that's all for the glory of God. Someone told me that in doing God's work, we don't get tired. We don't get tired doing God's work, and it's not burdensome. Well, it certainly isn't burdensome in the sense that we resist it because it just taxes us too much spiritually. But tiredness certainly does go along with doing God's work. If you just ask some of our more faithful people who are tasked with doing practically all of the work, just ask them if they ever get tired. Of course they get tired. And they tire out even more quickly when they have no help. And some just want to sit. They just love to watch what everybody else is doing. 
Watchers do not help the weary. Well, of course, as I say, workers get tired. Paul said he was often weary because of the travel, because of persecutions, because of the shipwrecks, because of the prisons. And then he added on top of that the care of all the churches. Sure, he was weary, but he kept on and he kept on because his work produced fruit. He was not weary with the act of well-doing or with good works. But he certainly got worn out physically by doing that constantly. Souls were won, saints were strengthened, churches were started. And whenever people come to know Jesus Christ, God is glorified. So we just keep on, don't we? We just keep fighting that fight of faith. We trudge on despite the weariness. We don't become weary with well-doing. And I don't know why the Bible would say that one day we will rest from all of our labors if we didn't actually need rest. Well, we do. And God will take care of that. But the point of all that is, now is not the time to sit down. Now is not the time for our rest. Now is not the time to quit. We have eternity. We have all of eternity to rest. When we keep up the labor, fruit is produced that glorifies God. Number five, prayer is worship. And let me qualify that. The right kind of prayer is worship. When I kept regular office hours, people that I don't know would stop by the church to see me and they would come just wearily into the parking lot. They would come into the office and they would sit down, broken down because there was some bad thing that happened to them. And they would come in and they would ask for prayer And they would come when they never considered asking for prayer before. But what they do is they come in and they want to bargain with God. Something bad has happened to them. Otherwise, they would never give a second thought of coming into the church. And so they want God to take care of their personal problem. They want God to be the personal genie to make their wishes come true. And in order to make that happen, they come in with the idea, I will make certain promises to God. And their promises that they know they will not keep because as soon as the problem is gone, so is their commitment and so is their prayer life. Almost 100% of the time, the people that I talk to in this condition, I do not see them in the next church service. Their prayers are about them and not about God. Now the right kind of prayer A prayer of worship and one that God honors is one that says, no matter what it is, Lord, your will be done. And rather than trying to get out of a mess, a God-honoring prayer asks first, God, if this is your mess, then help me to live in it. Help me to deal with it. And that brings me straight into the sixth point. Acceptance of God's will is worship. Worship says, not my will, but thine be done. And that takes us back to agreement with God, doesn't it? We agree with God. Whatever you say is right. We think of Job after all that he had been through. His family was killed. His servants were captured. His livestock were destroyed. All his wealth was gone. Even his best friends criticized him. Job was in a bad way. He had a big problem. Then on top of it all, God let Satan take his health away from him. 
Job didn't understand much of that. He didn't understand all that, but he knew that God was just. And he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He also is my salvation. Folks, that's the acceptance of God's will. If he calls on you for suffering, and he very well might, because he said that we are appointed for suffering, you worship him when you say, Though I suffer, blessed be the name of the Lord. But many Christians get angry with God. They don't remember God's wonderful works of providence. Instead, they remember their works. God, I have done so much for you. God, I've just done so much. Why did you allow this to happen to me? And they think, somehow, I deserve better than this. And we need to watch out for that because we need to remember what God says we must always be. That in our salvation, we become slaves of Christ. Many Christians don't want to be slaves. It's not their idea of what Christianity is about. They want to be servants, if they have to be servants, servants that pick and choose their place of service. They have nothing... Nothing but their own thoughts in this thing. They've got it all wrong. The Bible says you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. That's what Paul said. Glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's. What, what happens when you glorify God? He says glorify him, God in your body and spirit. What happens? Well, we've said it. When you glorify God, you worship When you accept God's will for your life, you worship God. And you can't do that unless you say, Lord Jesus, Lord Christ, I am your slave. Do with me what you will because I'm not my own. So don't be an impious, selective servant. You are a bond slave to Christ, a doulos, as Paul said. You glorify God when you accept his will, even if it means suffering. And folks, this is how... A real Christian is told how how you see who is a real Christian. uh, Identify that from a pretend one. Because a person will never consider suffering unless the Holy Spirit has changed his heart and made him willing. You understand this? The sovereign God must make you willing. Otherwise, what you would do always is run as far away from Christ as you can get. And when he makes you willing... You're a slave that gladly says, wrap your chains around me, Lord. Bore my ear through with an awl. I will serve you forever. Ah, but that doesn't sound too much like modern Christianity, does it? Modern Christians do not believe they have been called for suffering. They are called to big bank accounts. They're called to bigger houses. They're called to much Material possessions. They are called to the favor of this world. They are called to the contentment of riches rather than contentment with Christ. And I've told you that that is the theology of discontent. Because they're never happy unless they have all the stuff. I must have it all or I can't be happy. Has no one ever read Acts 14.22? We must, through much tribulation, 
enter the kingdom of God. This leads me straight into the next. Satisfaction is worship. Worship is being content, being satisfied with where you are. Do you know why that's true? Because God puts you where you are. If you're discontent with any circumstance, then you don't believe God treats you fairly. You deserve better. You deserve more. You deserve something different. Therefore, God shortchanged you. Discontent blames God because God is the one that controls your life. He allows you to be where you are. Do you think that God doesn't know your proper place? And don't misunderstand me because this doesn't mean you can't, you, you must enjoy being beaten with a stick. Although Paul and Silas were beaten with sticks and then, and then put in stocks. Those circumstances are not pleasant. I'm not saying that they are. Contentment does not mean everything must be pleasant. Contentment means that you accept whatever it is. And you don't blame God as if bad things equal God's tyranny. So that doesn't mean you can't desire a better job. It doesn't mean you can't work to get ahead financially or educationally. It doesn't mean you can't improve yourself. Those things are fine if you attribute your success to God and then you use that success to prosper God's kingdom. God gives you a job, glorify him by using your place of employment to advance his kingdom. God might even put you in a wicked place. And he may do that because you're the only one that those people will have to tell them what's wrong and how they need to know Jesus Christ to give them the truth that they're lost and they need Christ to save them. Most of us probably will not pray, Lord, put me in a wicked place. He might. And so you need to learn to deal with it in a God-honoring way. It'll be difficult. It is in this godless place that we live. But remember this. Nobody wants to hear about Christ until they have heard about Christ and believed him. I'm working from home, taking care of my wife. The wickedest thing that I experience on most days is when some of you call me. I don't work around the wicked. I do have to keep my eye on Pam at times, but I don't work around the wicked. If it is God's will that you work among heathens, so be it. Take that opportunity. Use it to glorify God. Be a witness because that also glorifies God. And glorifying God is worship. Well, I need to hurry on. We need to finish today. Next, giving is worship. You, you, you knew I had to go here before I finished, didn't you? When you give, you worship God. First Chronicles 16.29 Given to the Lord the glory due unto his name. There's the name of God mentioned again. The glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Bring an offering and worship God. What, what is this offering? Well, it could be the sacrifice of praise that we see in Hebrews 13:15. It could be the offering of ourselves that we see in Romans 12 verse 1. 
Those are spiritual offerings, and we need to bring those offerings to God. But haven't we also been told this, that we are to bring our physical tithes? We are to bring physical offerings? We worship God by being obedient to bring him the tithe he requires. Now, now think about this. If you begrudge God because you must give or you just don't give, do you think that God would accept your worship? Some folks come to church for years and, and they have never worshipped God because they've spent their lives cheating him, stealing from him, stealing his time. Now back up to that first point, trust is worship, faith is worship. So do you mean that you can't trust God with your tithes and offerings? Do you believe that you'll be worse off if you give to God than you would be if you didn't? Do you ever, do you ever say something like, I can't afford to tithe? Why would you say that? Only because you don't trust God. Nobody will come here and worship God if they don't trust him. I mean, how absurd would that be? If you don't trust him, how can you worship him? Do you think God accepts worship from you if you don't trust him? What he does, he just laughs at that foolish attempt. It's silliness. And his laugh is not a funny laugh. His laugh is a disgusted laugh. Because there's nothing more blasphemous than to call God a liar. And maybe you don't understand that. Uh, but if you'll not tithe because you think you can't afford it, then you don't believe that God will take care of you as he says he will. What is the fundamental plea from God about the tithe? In Malachi 3.10, God said, prove me. In no other way does God say to prove him. If you don't understand the outcome of testing God and the veracity of his statements, then you don't know God. God doesn't say, hey, hey, prove me, if he thinks that you're going to prove him to be untrustworthy. Well, no. He says, prove me, because he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to prove that you can trust him. You violate about half of the practical ways to worship God that we talked about today if you don't trust him. This is probably not the crowd that needs to hear this, so you can just pass it along, give it to somebody else. You, you've seen our, our um, announcement on the screen at offering time. It says, worship in tithes and offerings. And maybe I should change that slide to say, all worshipers, come and put your tithes in the offering plate. Bring an offering. Cheerfully bring an offering. God loves a cheerful giver. God wants you body, soul, and spirit. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. That includes your trust, which you can show by bringing an offering. Now, let's finish. I have one more point, a few subpoints under it. And we'll be done with the message very, very soon in this study of worship. Number eight is preparation for worship. Here are the criteria for being prepared for worship. We find it in Hebrews 10, verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you are to worship God, this is the way to be prepared. And this verse breaks down to four areas of preparedness. First, come with sincerity. It says, draw near with a true heart. 
That means with sincerity. Don't come in the spirit of hypocrisy. Don't be preoccupied with what you will get rather than what you can give. If you pretend to worship God when all that you do is think of self, it is hypocrisy. And this is, this is what causes a critical eye in the service. Some criticize everything. They're not satisfied because all the singing didn't match my standard. Or the preaching, that sure didn't match my standard. They haven't evaluated anything above their own opinions. So don't think God accepts the worship of a complaining hypocrite. If your purpose is criticism and you don't come to help solve whatever problem you think we have, it's hypocrisy because your purpose is selfish. It's not for the glory of God. Secondly, come with fidelity. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We've already talked about faith. How do you access God? Well, Hebrews tells us how to access God. 11.6, Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God, he that accesses God, must believe that he is, and that is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. John 14.6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How do you access God? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You can't access, access God by any other way than faith in Jesus Christ. You can't come based on your good works because you don't have any. You can't come with self-righteousness because the only righteousness God accepts is the righteousness that Christ gives you. You can't come on the back of any rituals because those don't have anything to do with the heart of faith. Come because of faith in Jesus or just don't come at all. Thirdly, come with humility. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. God's word says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Yes, we can, but not until we have been humbled by our total worthlessness. We have an evil conscience. Isn't that what he says in the verse? An evil conscience? That, that, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We're all the children of wrath. The Bible says that. So our boldness to come to the throne of God is not brazen self-confidence because we're nothing without Jesus Christ. If not for him, we dare not take one step toward the throne. We have no rights except those that are granted by God because of Christ. So we come with head bowed. Most people don't think that way. They just barge in on God and they think that they can pray because God hears everybody. God hears everyone no matter who they are. No, God hears only when you come in Jesus Christ because then he sees Christ, not you. You have no worth. You have no right to come into his presence. Christ is the one who makes you worthy. You must trust him. So if you try to come without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then you are the emperor with no clothes. You are the one who stands naked and bare and unwelcome. Humble yourself before you attempt to worship. If you don't, God will humble you and it won't be pleasant. Then fourthly, come with purity. Our bodies washed with pure water. 
Ooh, you might get scared of that one. It's not about taking a bath. Although some of you might need one. But it's not talking about a bath. What is this purity? What is this washing? He's speaking of the washing of regeneration. He's speaking of daily confession of sin. Don't come without your sins confessed. Do not come without confessing what you did on Friday and Saturday night. You must come washed in Christ's blood in that confession. You are prepared to worship when sins are confessed. And that point has been made repeatedly throughout all five of these sermons. David said to worship the Lord in holiness. Spurgeon exposits that phrase, the spiritual beauty of inward purity and outward holiness being far more precious in the eyes of our thrice holy God. Oh, for grace ever to worship with holy motives and in a holy manner as become as saints. Now let's go back to the verses in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in its holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. How can you miss that that is a parallel to Hebrews 10.22? Who is permitted to come? Those with a pure heart, clean hands, the sincere, the faithful, the humble, the pure, sincerity, fidelity, humility, and purity. This is how we worship. This is how we worship. It doesn't come by accident. You won't accidentally stumble into worship. No, it comes with careful consideration before you're ready to enter the presence of God. So Christian, you were made for worship. Our chief duty is to glorify God. Worship is the way that we glorify him. So let's be sure that we do it right. Let's do it only in spirit and in truth. He prescribed the right way, so let's do it his way, because no other way counts. Given to the Lord, O ye mighty, given to the Lord glory and strength, given to the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Father, we bow our heads before you today in worship. We pray that our prayers will be acceptable to you, that today in our own hearts as those in the congregation listen as I speak and as I pray that in their own hearts there is that confession of sin, there is the desire to satisfy you, there is desire to know that you are pleased with what we do and we are willing to surrender everything that we are that we might glorify you forever and forever. Bless our people, Lord. We thank you for the kind attention to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.